It's really, it is a blessing. It's a, a privilege to be here. Uh, I think one, one of the fun things about preaching here is that uh, over the last seven, seven and a half years, I've had a lot of opportunities to get to know and to make friends with uh, many of you. And so if uh, you haven't met me yet uh, and haven't gotten to know me, I just invite you. You're more than welcome to come on up and we'll talk and get to know one, one another afterwards here. Now, as Glenn put it, um, we're our church, Squamish Baptist Church, uh, along with the Rock Church, Grace Church in 99, and hopefully other uh, partners, we're working towards a spirit not of competition among churches, but of collaboration among local churches in our area. And that is just an incredible blessing of the Spirit of God, that we have the opportunity to work together uh, in, in a spirit of peace. And so things like, for example, the prayer room that uh, you guys are hosting and that we have a few individuals from our church joining as well. Uh, our church is putting on a family conference. We have a youth group. Grace Church of 99 runs a children's ministry. You guys are putting on a sports camp. Just We're doing all of these things, uh, not to mention Young Life. We're doing all of these things, uh, building more and more and more things in collaboration with one another. One of my visions as well is one thing I would love to develop uh, collaboration among uh, with our churches and perhaps a couple of other church partners is uh, a development of a collaboration in what we would call biblical counseling. And if you're wondering, okay, what is biblical counseling? You, you might also call it biblical soul care, uh, which captures the fact that this is something the church has really been doing for 2,000 years. Um, it is the personal ministry of God's word for the particular struggles of the human soul. And so the idea is that the ministry of God's word is not something that just takes place here on Sunday morning as you sit here and receive God's word from Glenn uh, or from Rudy or from myself. It is the ministry of God's word that can take place uh, between individuals uh, in family and group settings in which we are addressing the individual and particular struggles of your souls, of the souls of you and your families. And the aim of it is a Christ-like maturity, a worship, and good works, which we think are key and are core to a healthy, fully uh, righteous, fully restored relationships. Now, when I talk about that personal ministry of God's word, maybe the thought occurring to you is, aren't we already doing this? Aren't we already doing this? And perhaps in your community groups, uh, uh, at other settings, for example. And uh, yeah, you are to some degree or other. And so what I would put out to you is some people think, well, Dave, what are you proposing that our church start a counseling ministry? That's not what I'm proposing. What I'm proposing is your church already has a counseling ministry. The question is not whether your church has a counseling ministry or not. It already does. You're already doing it. Each of you is already counseling others. The question is, is it a good counseling ministry or not? Biblical counseling is something that is practiced by all believers within the local church. Now, some people uh, study to gain extra degrees of expertise for particularly severe problems where people get stuck in deep struggles of sin, suffering, and shame. But a church really grows and is encouraged when a church develops a culture of biblical soul care. Um, I think perhaps it's been expressed here as, as gospel fluency. Uh, there are a number of different names for it. But... It is something that is not reserved just for professional practitioners. So many deep problems can be headed off when we develop a culture of soul care in our church and 
are able to help people and intervene in their lives in gracious, loving ways before problems get deeper, before ruts get deeper. In biblical counseling, we hold that Scripture is sufficient to help a fellow Christian reach spiritual maturity. Scripture gives us a sufficient framework to understand the deep problems of the human soul because it describes us perfectly. Now, maybe you think, well, what about uh, people I know who seem to be spiritually mature, but they seem to be emotionally immature and relationally immature. They seem to have deep problems in how they handle their emotions, how they handle relationships. And what I would put out to you is what you're seeing is someone who actually isn't spiritually mature. Because spiritual maturity encompasses how we work through our emotions, how we process them, how we develop relationships. In biblical counseling, the agent of change is the Holy Spirit. It is not just simply learning a seven-step process for how to handle your emotions. It is not simply for you know, developing a therapeutic relationship with your counselor in which you, another person saves you through that relationship. Although those things are helpful, ultimately it is the Holy Spirit who is the agent of change in your relationship with the Spirit of God that transforms you. And in biblical counseling, the goal is not simply to just reach this place where you have this experience of being free from anxiety and troubling emotions. The goal is to reach the spiritual maturity of being conformed to Jesus Christ. It is my joy when I start seeing people moving in a direction where they are starting to become as much like Jesus as any human being can possibly be. And the way he works through his relationships, the way he handles his emotions, the way that he relates with God, the Father, through the Spirit. If you are looking like Jesus, then you are being made whole because he is the most human being who has ever lived. He is the only sane human being who has ever lived. And so we're here to consider something that is deeply characteristic of the life of Jesus Christ, and that's the fruit of the Spirit. Consider the fruit of the Spirit as you read these, and think about these. Think about what you know about Jesus when you read the Gospels. Galatians 5, verses 22 through 23 says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. We're here to talk about the fruit of the Spirit that is known as peace. And we've got a lot of ground to cover. This is about a three months worth of uh, sermons uh, encapsulated in one. So I apologize. This is almost like a fire hose of peace coming at you. The absence of the, these, all these fruits of the, of these fruit of the spirit, the absence of these things in my life, in my life causes me a lot of problems. It causes, by the way, it causes the people around me a lot of problems. I, I uh, recently, somewhat recently, uncovered an old journal that was written from when, uh, years 2008 through 2010. And I was reading the things I was writing as a much younger man. And I was just cringing as I was reading the thought processes and the behavior of myself as a much younger man. And I, on, I went on Facebook and I wrote an apology. And I said, I'm deeply sorry for all the people who knew me at that time. You were so patient. <laughs> Imagine for a moment that you're in my shoes as a pastor or a counselor. I get people asking 
to meet with me about all sorts of difficulties in their lives. Um, A lot of places where the fruit of the Spirit is noticeably absent in the experience of their lives and their relationships. Now, think of the things that might be absent. Which ones do you think people are most likely to notice when they're absent? Do they notice the absence of patience? Sitting down with me saying, help me, pastor, I'm not a very patient guy. Do they notice the absence of gentleness? Help me, I'm not gentle towards my employees. Do they notice the absence of self-control? Help me, I've gotten completely lost in a new hobby. I can't stop making kombucha. (laughs) Well, sometimes these things happen, right? Sometimes I do sit and work with people who are struggling with the absence of those fruits of the Spirit. But you know what's interesting is I find that the fruits of the Spirit, that when they're absent, uh, the ones that people are most likely to come in and seek help for are the first three. Love, joy, peace. There's no longer any love in my marriage. I've lost the joy I used to have for God and for the things of life. And you know what the most frequent one of all is? There's no peace in my home. And there's no peace in my heart. Just like going to the physician, most people don't go until long after they should have gone. Most people don't seek the help they need until they are at their wit's end. When they come to me about a lack of peace, it is usually after years and decades, sometimes a lifetime, of living in relationships without peace, the way of peace they have not known. One individual described his desire for his family like this, I just want the fighting to stop. I just want everyone to get along. Now that's understandable, a deeply understandable desire. But I think it also captures a misunderstanding that we have about peace. One misunderstanding about peace is the belief that peace is the absence of conflict. That is not true. Even in a sinless, utterly peaceful world, there is actually still going to be conflict. Imagine your life 50,000 years from now. So, you know, maybe you've been in your resurrected state on the new heavens, the new earth for the last 49,000 years. And you're meeting up outside the gates of the new Jerusalem with one of your best friends. So you go through the gates, the pearly gates. Your assignment is to plant a new orchard on the banks of the river of water of life. And you walk the streets of the gold out of the city together. And you arrive at the plot of land where you plan to garden together. And once you begin the work, you realize that the two of you have different ideas in your head about what fruit trees should be planted where. You are now in conflict with one another. Because you're not a hive mind. The beautiful thing about sinless perfection is that despite that fact, you are at peace. So you can work through that conflict in an incredibly gracious way, carefully listening to one another, working to solve the conflict together. That's what peace looks like. It's not the absence of conflict. It is the presence of trust and order in our relationships that allows us to work through conflict without sinning against God, without sinning against one another. It's a beautiful thing. In the new creation, there is something better that is waiting for you than the absence of conflict. There is a kingdom of peace that is awaiting you. You want peace. 
And our prayer is, to God is, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, that kingdom of peace. So what is peace and where does it come from? What is peace? Where does it come from? The Bible is very clear where peace comes from. On many occasions in the Bible, the Lord is called the God of peace. The God of peace. Peace comes from God. Peace is in his very nature. He is the God of peace. He is the one who makes peace because he is the one who is himself at peace. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's exactly right. Why will peacemakers be called sons of God? Have you ever stopped to think about that if you've encountered this verse? And the answer is simple, because they're a chip off the old block. They're just like their father. Peacemakers are just like the God whom they have grown up to resemble. Because God is, in eternity, a God of peace. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. He is a singular being existing in eternity, in harmonious union among three persons. His very nature, even in eternity, is a God who is fundamentally at peace. The Trinity is harmony in eternity. This harmonious union is the essence of peace. Peace consists in rightly ordered relationships. That is what the Apostle Paul means. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, talking to a church full of chaos and disorder, he says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. What do peacemakers do that cause them to be called sons of God? What they do is peacemakers take relationships that are full of confusion, instability, distrust, mental toil, and they take those relationships and they remake them, remold them into relationships of peace. Peacemakers are led by the Spirit of God as they cultivate trust and order in their relationships. And within this trust and order, finally, conflict can start being resolved. Rest can finally be found. Blessed are the peacemakers who share this desire of the Spirit, who keep in step with the Spirit, and who have come to know the way of peace. Against such things, there is no law. Peace is the fruit of the Spirit. Peace comes from the God of peace. Now, there may be other kinds of peace that don't come from God. Consider the blessing Jesus gave to his disciples in John chapter 14. He says to them, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Because God the Son, Jesus Christ, brings them his own peace. This is a peace he has enjoyed in eternity in the Trinity. It's something he talks about at length in those chapters. And he says, not as the world gives do I give to you. He gives them a kind of peace that is different than all the peace that they have known and experienced, different than the varieties of peace that the world has offered to them and that the world offers to you. What are those other forms of peace that the world gives? What are the alternatives to peace? Let's consider the alternatives to peace. The last few weeks, Glenn has given us 
These images are the fruit of the Spirit. We have a fully ripened cluster of grapes that are healthy and sweet because they have been abiding in the vine. They're mature, they're ripe, they're wonderful. Then we also have a half-ripened cluster of grapes, which, you know, they're, they're getting there. <laughs> they are maturing into the kind of fruit that they are meant to be. And so it is with genuine peace. It is healthy and sweet when it is mature. Most of us who are following the Lord, in fact, all of us, are, we're kind of on the way there. Uh, we can be sour grapes at times, right? But Glenn also explained that the fruit of the Spirit has its counterfeits. And you had better believe it. This is no more true than it is with peace. You better believe I see counterfeits of peace in the relationships of the people I'm counseling. So sometimes you have to do a lot of unlearning before you can learn something new. And we have to unlearn the counterfeits of peace. But we love our counterfeits. As a six-year-old boy, I, you know, I would have looked at these delicious clusters of grapes and delivered a big yawn, right? Uh, I'm, I'm sort of unimpressed by that. You know what kind of treat six-year-old Dave would have been impressed by? Big bowl of fruity pebbles, soaked in milk, loaded with sugar. Oh, so colorful and so sweet. I don't, are these in the grocery stores here in Squamish? I don't think I've seen them. Probably for the best, right? You don't want to take your kids by the boxes full of these things. Oh, boy, they want them. That's the kind of fruit that we want to eat. We often grow up in families in which we learn to think that this is the real thing. Sometimes we mistake the counterfeit for the real thing. We're like little kids who see one of those vines that is lacking. There's, there's no fruit growing on it. And so we think, well, we, this vine needs fruit on it. And so we take the purple fruity pebbles and we staple them to the vine. That's behavior, it's this behavior modification that is so common, so endemic in churches where we recognize there's no peace, so we need peace, so we start sticking false counterfeits of peace onto the vine. But it is fake fruit. It is counterfeit fruit. It did not grow from abiding in Christ. It is not fed by the vine. It is not real. It is no more real than fruity pebbles are real. There are four alternatives to peace. I'm going to walk us through one opposite and then three counterfeits. One opposite and three counterfeits. The opposite is obvious. The counterfeits are not so obvious. The opposite of peace is peace-breaking. It's peace-breaking. And you see this listed as opposites right here in Galatians chapter 5. As Paul is dis- Before Paul even starts discussing the fruit of the Spirit, in verse 15, he says, If you bite and devour one another, watch that you are not consumed by one another. Well, there we go. That's peace-breaking for sure. Consider... All the opposites that Paul lists as works of the flesh, the bad fruit of the flesh in verses 20 and 21. These works of the flesh are what we produce when we try to do our own thing in our own power, merely human, independent of God. Some of the works of the flesh are enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. These are all forms of peace breaking, and we know them well. These works of the flesh ruin our families. They ruin our churches. They ruin nations. They ruin our lives. Nobody likes peace-breaking. 
Now, here's the thing you're thinking. Well, I know some people who seem to really like peace breaking. Well, I actually disagree. Nobody likes this, but we end up doing it anyway. Why? Why do some families always seem to be fighting? Why do churches always seem to be splitting into factions? Why do otherwise quiet people suddenly blow up in rage, seemingly out of nowhere? You see, everybody wants peace. But a lot of times, the kind of peace they have in mind is a bowl of fruity pebbles. It's a counterfeit. Consider these three counterfeits of peace. Pursuing these counterfeits is what leads to peace breaking. Counterfeit number one, we could call pacification. Pacification. Peace through superior firepower. In Paul's day, they called this the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, the kind of peace that his readers in Galatia knew all too well, because it was the kind of peace that Rome inflicted on its subjects. Rome pacified them by defeating them and making them submit under the boot of Caesar. Now, there is a, sp- there is a place for confrontation in our relationships. Graciously confronting others is a necessary part of peacemaking. It is a genuine tactic of love. But confrontation has its counterfeit in pacification. What does it look like to pacify someone? Accusation and demand. Accusation and demand. Pointing the finger. This is your fault. There's only one person to blame here. Not me, you. Maybe I have a speck in your eye. You've got a log in yours. Exaggerating. You always side with her. You never take out the trash. You only think about yourself. You're the worst dad ever. Labeling and shaming. You're a loser. You're pathetic. Failure. You're toxic. Ugly. Stupid. You moron. We could go on and on and on with these weapons of pacification. Interrupting, lecturing, raising your voice, yelling, stomping around, slamming doors, throwing things, intimidating, restraining someone, pushing, slapping, hitting. You get on your phone, trying to accumulate the most likes on social media to show that you are right and your opponent is wrong. Gathering a Twitter mob to turn against your enemies all so that we can get what we want. We pull out bigger and bigger guns. Peace through superior firepower. I win. We do things my way. And now we're at peace. It's not just against other people. Maybe you try to win against God. That is what grumbling against him and defying his law is all about. How could God do this to me? Why would he make me like this? I would never worship a God like that. Against our fellow man, these tactics of enmity and strife we have already mentioned. Sometimes we try to win, and we think accusing ourselves is going to get us the victory. Job's friends, we sometimes accuse ourselves the way Job's friends accused him. You're beating yourself up to do better, try harder, repent better. And, but your goal is you're trying to do it because you want to feel good about yourself. You want to feel like you've won something. You've got something that I can go to God and say, I did better. I tried harder. I win. 
We may not love conflict per se, but we do love to win. So we pursue pacification, and then that leads to peace-breaking. This is the first counterfeit of peace. Counterfeit number two is appeasement. Counterfeit number two is appeasement. Sometimes this is a counterpart to pacification. One person pacifies, the other appeases them. If I don't think I can get what I want by winning, maybe I can get what I want by giving in. I'll pay my tribute to Caesar, and in exchange, I'll get something I want out of Caesar. You know, being a subject of Rome had its benefits. Usually in our relationships, the appeasing person wants love, wants acceptance, respect, security, safety. We have other names for appeasement. Peer pressure, enabling, codependence. Now, graciously yielding to others is in fact a necessary part of peacemaking. It's a genuine tactic of love, but it's got its counterfeit, and that counterfeit is appeasement. What does it look like to appease someone? It looks like accommodating sinful and foolish behavior in others because they have something we want. They can give us something we want. A middle school student is attacked and ridiculed by her peers, so she goes along with the crowd, appeasing them in order to be accepted. A mom dreads taking her toddler to the grocery store because he throws a tantrum so often. She feels helpless. She gives him whatever he wants just to make it stop. She just wants to not be embarrassed in public. A husband sees his wife misbehaving. He's afraid to challenge and contradict her. She might freak out. She might leave him. And so he says, yes, dear, yes, dear, and accommodates her folly, sometimes even defending it to others. Deep down underneath, I've seen this often in, in men in this situation, they're angry. She isn't respecting him for being such a nice guy. It turns out she doesn't respect a doormat. A wife simply accepts responsibility whenever her husband blows up at her and yells degrading things at her. She simply, say, simply stays quiet, gives in to whatever he says. But being a perennial wallflower is not making things better. Maybe you try to appease God. Like the servant in the parable of the ten talents, you imagine that he is a severe master. And so you obsess over, I need to repent better. I need, I need to do more things for him. You start going on a hunt, trying to root out all the sins and idols. You're trying to repent and repent and be a good person first. Because you're, and the reason you're trying to do that is you're trying to beat him to the punch, trying to do better and do better before he gets his hands on you. As though he's an abusive father. Maybe you try to appease other people, always saying yes to their demands, caving in to their accusations. You've convinced yourself you're powerless. You've got no choice, no agency, no ability. And as a result, you end up lacking integrity because whoever is pushing the hardest, whoever is yelling the loudest, you just give in to them. And if somebody else starts pushing harder and yelling louder, you give in to them and you flip-flop back and forth. You can't keep up with all the things you've said yes to. Maybe you try to appease yourself. Your thoughts, your feelings that are running rampant in your mind. Oh, I've got to do what they, what, I, what they tell me to do. I've got to give in to temptation. I have to stay stuck in dark thoughts. 
I have to avoid anxious things at all cost. I'm powerless. I'm helpless. Appeasement is one of the ways we get what we want. That's the second counterfeit of peace. And you think it's a way out of peace-breaking, but unfortunately, the bad news is it just leads to more peace-breaking. Counterfeit number three, peace-faking. Peace-faking. This is what happens to people who've gotten just so weary, so tired of all the fighting, all the pointed fingers, all the explosions, all the drama. In a family of peace-fakers, everything gets swept under the rug. Now, that never happens in your families, does it? If someone blows up, okay, they blew up, we move on, we act like it never happened. Okay. Dad blew up this morning at everybody, but just put on your smiles and let's go to church. And then afterwards, we're going to post some perfect family photos on Instagram. Everything is great. Everything is great, okay? Ah, this is a Canadian specialty. Is it not? Let's just, just get along, be nice and polite. Don't rock the boat. Don't bring up that touchy subject. We don't talk about politics or religion here. We don't talk about our problems. Keep calm and carry on. Is life at home getting tense? Escape. Hop on your mountain bike and hit the trails. Get out of the house. Are the kids acting up? Let your wife deal with it so you can go and watch the Canucks game. Is your marriage falling apart? Pull out your phone. Just scroll through Instagram. Scroll and scroll and scroll forever. Avoid, escape, put on a happy face. Of all the counterfeits, this one is probably the one I'm most prone to. We have our favorites. This one's mine. This is my bowl of fruity pebbles that God has called me to give up. But they are oh so tasty. Maybe you're faking peace within yourself. You put on a good face to others on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of turmoil. You find no rest. But you keep telling yourself, this is fine. You're like that little dog in the fiery room. This is fine. This is fine. Living the dream. Maybe you're faking peace with other people, sweeping under the rug, avoiding conflict, dodging responsibility, escaping problems. Worst of all, maybe, and I want to spend some time on this because this is a huge, huge problem in our churches and in our culture. Maybe you've been faking peace with God. You think you and God, yeah, we're okay. I live my life my way. He does his God thing, whatever that is. I don't really need him. I don't really need to be saved from much of anything. You live in complacency, perhaps, adopting the advice of, this, of the false prophets in Jeremiah chapter 23. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. But this is peace faking. Because if we live independently from God, living according to the flesh, things are not fine between us and God. If we have never honored Jesus Christ as Lord, never sought to be forgiven. If we want to persist in sin, defying his law, if we continue to presume on his patience and his kindness, he has given us years, opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent, and he has held he has held back in incredible patience. 
But we continue to embrace the counterfeits of peace as he does so. We keep pacifying and appeasing and peace-faking. Our pursuit of all this false peace lets us, leads us to become peace-breakers. And if we keep spurning God's offer of real peace, if we keep rejecting his son, then he has spoken these words in Isaiah 57. Peace, peace. This is his heart. This is his heart for this world. This is his heart for Squamish. Peace, peace. To the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And as waters toss up mire and dirt, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. I can assure you I see this in the counseling room. What if we turn away from fake peace? Galatians 5 verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What if you were to crucify every form of false peace in our relationships? What if you were to nail it to a cross, kill it with absolute contempt and leave it for dead? What if you were to turn and embrace real peace, to learn how to live in harmonious union the way that God does in eternity? What if you were to abide in Christ and begin walking in the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit? Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. How do we keep in step with the Spirit on the way to real peace? Oh, this will require a deep day-by-day dependence with the Lord. Let's think of the Spirit's footsteps as a one, two, three journey. One way to peace with God. Two ways to peace within yourself. Three ways to peace with others. Let's start with that one. I want to take a bit of extra time on this one. One way to peace with God. Because you've got to get this one right. God's word is very clear on this. Romans chapter 5. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It comes when you have faith. You have put your trust in his son, Jesus Christ. You trust that his righteousness is counted on your behalf in a great exchange. You're righteous in God's eyes now. Your long war against God has finally come to an end. The enmity that has stood between you and God has been brought to a full and final close. It is finished. Now there is real peace. Now there is real wholeness. Now there is real wellness, what the Jews would call real shalom. And it only comes when you have faith in Jesus Christ. You trust that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You trust that his death on the cross paid the full penalty for your sins. It satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf. You trust that in his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ won the victory against Satan and all evil and the final enemy of death. And that Jesus has laid out a path for you to follow in his footsteps. You can finally rest. Because Jesus Christ has done it all for you. 
The one way to peace with God is faith and rest in Jesus Christ and what he has done. This is a peace that can never be taken away from you. It is a real peace, an eternal peace. And Jesus Christ is the only way to real peace. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Imagine this illustration. Uh, Imagine for a moment that you're looking from above at our whole solar system, all of the planets and moons and asteroids, and they are moving in perfect harmony, each in their proper orbits. You realize we live in a solar system at peace. Its peace and stability are what makes space for a world like this one, in which life can flourish and grow. Chaos and disorder in the solar system would destroy life as we know it. What keeps this system of cosmic relationships among the celestial bodies? What keeps it at peace? What mass, what gravity, what source of power and light lie at the center that arranges everything in harmonious union? You know what it is. It's the sun. It holds everything in place. Is it not the sun that belongs at the center of the solar system, around which everything else is ordered? Is it not the sun that keeps our solar system at peace? Now, what would happen if you had the power to snap your fingers and make the sun vanish? I don't just mean go invisible. I mean utterly disappear, evaporate. Would peace in our solar system be possible? No. All the planets and objects would fly off in chaos and confusion and disorder. Some of them would start smashing into one another. Others would start orbiting the wrong things. We might end up circling Jupiter. Others would wander off into the abyss. All peace would be lost forever. So it is with God. You must have peace with God at the center in order for yourself to be at peace and in order for your relationships to be at peace. You can, perhaps, try to banish God from your solar system of relationships of which you are a part. Now, first of all, you don't have the ability to banish God any more than you can banish the sun from the sky. So good luck with that. The other aspect is just as, regardless of whether you believe that the sun is there or not, its light still shines. It still brings order. God's grace, even towards unbelievers, it always provides some measure of peace to our world. But that's true only as long as we are this side of judgment. There's coming a day of judgment where if you wish God's presence to be absent from your life, his radiant light to be absent from your light, your wish will come true if you have not turned to him. The light will go out, all true peace will be gone. And in that day, the alternatives to peace will be shown for the fraud that they are. There is only one way to real peace. It is by faith in the Son of God who gave his life to bring us peace with God.
God has made this world so that we would honor his son. That's the whole point of why he made it. He made this world because he loves his son, is at peace with his son. And so the spirit moves to, make, to bring us to peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that on our one, two, three journey, we have the one, one way to peace with God. Now let's consider the two. Two ways to peace within yourself. You ever feel like you're going crazy at times? Is it just me? You ever feel lost in your head? Detached from the here and now? Ever got consumed by dark thoughts? Dark thoughts about yourself? Dark thoughts about the future? Dark thoughts about God's intentions for you? Do you ever get lost in worlds of catastrophe inside of your head and you're spiraling out of control and people try to break you out of them, but you just won't? You're just stuck. Has anyone ever told you, hey, just stop thinking about it. Stop thinking about it. Doesn't work, does it? Do you feel like you have to be there? I have to think those things. I have to. Can you relate to this line from Ecclesiastes chapter 5? All his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. This is an interesting one when I read this to people I'm counseling. Their eyes bug out of their heads because that's them. You need peace. Peace from the mental toil that's going on in here. The toil that, let's be honest, what's it gotten you? Has it added a single hour to your life? Has it added a hair to your head? It hasn't gained you anything. The first way to peace within yourself is to rest and remember. You have to rest and remember. All right, a little bit of a spiel here, okay? Our culture does not do rest. We live in one of the most anti-rest cultures <laughs> that has existed. Now, granted, we're not a, a slave culture, thank God, like Pharaoh, running the people of Israel into the ground, killing them off with work. So thankfully, we're not like that. But one thing we are is there is just no place for rest. We have used laws and technologies to augment ourselves, to augment our productivity. We're always online, always available, always on the go, doing more and more and more. The structures and practices that should interrupt us, ground us, humble us, many of them have been swept away. There are no more Sabbath laws. You're always a phone call away from your boss. You're always a text message away from your customers. The limitations of our bodies no longer hold us back from doing more, 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 more. More notifications on your phone. More shuttling kids around to one activity after another, after another, after another. Got to hit the ski hill. Got to hit the trails. Got to hit the gym. The latest gear. Upgrade your phone. Renovations, renovations, renovations. Scroll, scroll, scroll through your social media feed. More movies to watch. Your Netflix watch list keeps growing. Oh, there's more. I need to do more and more and more. And finally, it's 3 a.m. And you turn it all off and you climb into bed. Okay, time to sleep. And your mind is going and going and going and going and going. And there is no rest. Toil is what Ecclesiastes calls that. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Where do we find peace? In the past, it was built into the fabric of society. Perhaps in our culture, Sabbath laws shut down businesses for a day a week. If you left the house, there was no way to reach you. News from the outside world 
came in at a steady trickle. When it got dark out, you went to sleep because what else were you going to do? <laughs> there was no lights. Life moved at the speed of walking and the speed of conversation. Now, a lot of problems with that sort of world. I'm not saying there aren't good things that come with this one. But peace is very hard for us. If you want peace within yourself, our culture is not going to support you. It will not support you in your efforts to rest and to remember what you need to remember. You will have to develop the structures yourself as a church, as a family, as an individual. I'm sorry to say, I wish this were so true. I wish you could just drift into rest and drift into a proper separation between work and rest, but it's not going to happen. You have to plan for it, just like the Israelites had to plan for a Sabbath. And I struggle to rest too. I have, a, I have a very intense mind that just tends to go and go and go. And I'm slowly learning that God calls us to rest and remember. You have to interrupt yourself. Recognize the mental toil when it's consuming you. Know what that looks like for you. And take decisive action, even physical action, to kill it. If what it takes is to get out of that mental toil is you stick your hand under a, head under a cold tap, you do that. Get out of there. Memorize scripture. I often have people memorize a verse from the Psalms for an emergency prayer to cry out to God in that time. Ground yourself. You've got to practice ways to come back to the here and now, to the real world. God has you in this room, here, with these people, right now. Engage your senses. Explore the physical and natural world around you. This is my Father's world. He exists here. He is present here. He is not present in the the imaginary worlds of catastrophe in our heads. Do not walk that valley of the shadow of death alone. If you must walk through a valley of the shadow of death, do it in the real world where God is present and God is with you. Humble yourself. Write your anxieties. Bring them to God in prayer. Cast them on him because he cares for you. You will actually have to practice how to take your anxieties to God, throw them on him, and say, These are yours. Lord, what do I do in this relationship? What do I do with this person? I don't even know. What do I do with my kids? How do I help? What's going on here? Lord, I need your help. I bring these to you. I lay them at your feet. Rest and remember. The second way to peace within yourself is to repent. A lot of times underneath all of that mental toil, sustaining the mental toil, feeding it, our false beliefs that we've been holding on to, idolatrous desires, overwhelming fears that have been driving us, inner vows, coping mechanisms that have enslaved us. You're going to need to let these go. You're going to need to learn to walk a new path of trust and worship towards God, a new path in which you're entrusting yourself to Jesus Christ. You're doing that daily and daily resting in his finished work a new way of peace to travel as you keep in step with the Spirit. To rest and remember, you're probably going to need help to learn how to do that. To repent, you're definitely going to need help. Because the heart is deceitful. We don't understand ourselves well. Only the Lord can really, the Spirit can do that work of testing our heart and understanding us. Thankfully, he also helps supply wise people whom he can speak through to help see blind spots we don't see. 
That's a great deal of the work that I do as a biblical counselor, helping people to rest and remember, helping them to repent. My hope and my, my desire for the Rock Church is that this becomes a church that has a reputation for wise men and women who do this well. That if your marriage is falling apart, people in the Rock Church know how to walk with you through it. That if life, with your, life in your family is full of chaos, people can walk alongside and help you. That if your inner world is full of turmoil, they can help walk with you and learn how to live at peace. For our one, two, three journey, we have one way to peace with God, two ways to peace within yourself, and there's finally three ways to peace with others. I won't go too in-depth with these because this is the part where, okay, we can now have a three-month sermon series on how to have peace with others. Turns out people are really complicated. Did you know that? God, that's the amazing thing. God is very simple. We're the complicated ones. There's a deep and divine simplicity to God and his being. The reason he seems to be so complicated in the way he does things in the Bible is because we're complicated. We're the ones who have messed things up and muddied the waters. We're the ones who are like the foaming and tossing sea for whom there is no peace. But God fully intends for us to live at peace. The message of the gospel was meant to bring peace among us in our relationships. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul was writing to a church that had a mix of Jews and Gentiles. It was a church that the world looked at and saw two peoples. You're a Jew or you're a Gentile. But in fact, God looked at and saw one people. Here's what Paul tells them in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 18. Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. The whole of the book of Ephesians is written to show how the gospel brings peace in our relationships and the kind of relationships we form. We have one spirit among us who produces the fruit of peace in all of us. He kills the hostility among us. We begin sharing the harmonious order of the God of peace. That is what is meant to happen in the church. Now, if you've spent any time in church at all, that may not seem to match what you're seeing on the ground. Let me assure you as a pastor, I see it too, okay? I am not, <laughs> if, and if you have, by the way, if you haven't seen it yet, you will see people in the church in all the ugly glory of the flesh. Where there should be peacemaking, you're going to find pacification, appeasement, peace faking. You'll find the disorder and chaos of peace breaking. And as a result, some people just finally just swear off the church because of this. What a place of hypocrites. 
Some say, well, that's because of these North American evangelical churches. They're just all like that, right? If you crack open your Bible and you turn to books like 1 Corinthians, Galatians, James, guess what? These are not 21st century problems. They were happening in these churches as well in the first century. We've always had a problem with peace. And that's because many of us are immature. I'll be the first to say it. My fruit is unripe. The way of peace I've barely come to know. We have to unlearn the futile ways that we inherited from our forefathers. But the Lord is at work, patiently, relentlessly, as the vine dresser who trims and prunes and causes us to grow, fed by his spirit, abiding in his son. Now, if you're wanting to grow in peace towards others, I'll give you a book recommendation here because it's impossible to go into all the details of it all. So a book called by Ken Sandy that's titled The Peacemaker, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict. So you can look up The Peacemaker. Uh, Ken Sandy walks you through the process and pitfalls of reconciliation amid all the mess of personal relationships. And so if you're the kind of person you like, you know, a linear process and you like lots of specifics and details and how-tos, that's a book that's full of wisdom for you. So The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy is a really good one. For now, here's a quick summary, very quick. Three ways to peace with others. The first way to peace is Christ-like love. Not the counterfeit love of the world, but the love of Christ that is full of compassion and full of honesty and truth. A love that moves towards others in kindness. A love that patiently gives room for them to grow. A love that we see in Christ in which he responds to evil, never with contempt, but, all, but always with grief-stricken anger. A love that knows when to yield, when to challenge, when to pull back and wait. The flesh has like its one or two strategies that it always loves to deal with relationships in. The spirit is so nimble and flexible and willing to swift, switch tactics when the situation calls for it. He is wise and creative and powerful. You can only love people in that brilliant and adaptable way that is so characteristic of Jesus. When you are led by the Spirit, when you are enthralled by the person of Jesus Christ that you see in the four Gospels, the first way to peace with others is a Christ-like love. The second way to peace is repentance. Again, repentance shows up again. We talked about it before as that's essential to peace with God. That's essential to peace within yourself. But taking full responsibility for your own sins against others is vital to peacemaking. Not going to others with an apology. I'm sorry if you're offended. You know, I'm sorry that you're so sensitive. That's a winner. <laughs> Taking full ownership of your sins, even if they seem small in your eyes, realizing I need to own this. Even if I'm only 10% at fault in this relationship, I got to own my 10% fully. It's a new lifestyle of earnest obedience to God. And only when true repentance plays out over time, that is the only way to restore relationships of trust in our families and churches. People always want shortcuts. We want restored relationship really fast. We want to skip real repentance, real prolonged earnest obedience. But trust takes time. Repentance is the second way to peace with others. 
Third way to peace, forgiveness. Forgiveness always sounds wonderful, as C.S. Lewis put it, until you've got something to forgive. Refusing to pursue vengeance on the other person. You're not going to lock them in a cage in your heart and visit them in there and yell abuse at them inside your heart. Refusing to collect on the relational debt they owe you. And then if you can have a conversation and they actually take ownership and repent, you can release them from the debt altogether. Never again bringing up their sin as a weapon against them. Beginning a journey towards, okay, I'm going to start opening my heart to maybe, maybe we can start practicing trusting you more a little bit at a time. Forgiveness is the third way to peace with others. And with these three ways to peace with others, you can finally follow God's commandment in Romans chapter 12. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In a world that doesn't know the way of peace, this church can be a place where real peace can be found. Peace with God, peace within yourselves, peace with one another. What if your church could be a place of peace? What if it could sound like these words from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Our God and our Father, we have for so long walked paths that we thought were peace. We have accepted counterfeits. Before we came to know the Lord, we knew nothing of peace. Since we've come to know the Lord, we have tasted more and more of that, and it is a delightful fruit. But we are on a long journey to learn how to become what you have called us to be, that our behavior matches the name that you have placed on us, the name of Jesus Christ, that our sanctification matches our justification, our holiness matches what you have already called us to be, holy to the Lord. Teach us the way of peace, Lord. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand the way of peace. Amen.